If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to finish out John chapter 4 today. Start reading in verse 43. This is God's word. Now after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee, where he first made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus was come out of Judea unto Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him, and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of the hour when he began to amend, and they said to him, Yesterday, at this seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea unto Galilee. We saw earlier in chapter 4, that, God, uh, that Jesus was speaking to a, uh, to a Samaritan woman uh, who was at a well in Sakhar in the middle of, of, uh, middle of the country, in the middle of Samaria. And he told her that the water that she was going to every day uh, would never satisfy her. That the, what she was doing every day of her life to try to make life work for her was never going to satisfy her. And that Jesus only could give her what she was searching for. And it was a complete and total revival. A revival like you had not seen in Israel at all. This was a revival among people who could, should never have come to Jesus. Except that the Holy Spirit was free to work. And there was a great um, harvest of souls. John tells us here at the end of chapter 4 that this is the second miracle or the second miraculous sign that Jesus had done. And John, in his entire book, only uses seven. Seven miracles. Now, he also tells you in chapter 20 that if everything that Jesus said and did were recorded, that the earth itself could not fill the books that would be written. But, but he picks seven, and he is remembering, telling us that Jesus is God, that that is his point. He wants us to, to know that Jesus was God. We see that this is also in Cana, that this is that little tiny town. There probably is only six, five families that live there. It's not even a town. There wouldn't even have been a gas station. It's the middle of nowhere. It's just a community, probably all with people related to each other back way away in near Galilee, and he's back in Cana. He came to visit. 
you, you're sure that he's got relatives there. That's where, why, why he came. He came to see his great aunt Myrtle or something like that. And he was in Cana. And it, the Bible also tells you that this was where he turned water into wine. So we, we've looked at that miracle, that first miracle that nobody even knew happened. It was a miracle that was public, but no one recognized that it actually happened. Only just the a fewest people knew that it even had occurred. And it was considered his first miraculous sign. And we saw that that if you were going to teach the little kids, remember I said if you were going to teach the four-year-olds, you would teach that Jesus had power over creation, that that's how you would teach it. And it was absolutely, you could so easily see that if Jesus didn't just turn something that was going to eventually turn into wine, he didn't turn, you know, a box of grapes into wine, or he didn't turn a bottle of grape juice into wine, something that would have already happened eventually. He turned something into something that would never have happened. He created it. So it showed him as creator. And I would teach the little kids that. But we saw that there was way more. That he took the water jars meant for purification and he filled them with wine. That if you're going to present yourself, if you're going to clean yourself so that you can present yourself to God, you can't do it with water. You can't just wash yourself because you can't wash yourself well enough. Isaiah said, all the, all the soap that Fuller has, who is the soap maker, and the, launder, the laundromat could never make you clean enough that God would accept you based upon you scrubbing yourself clean. It doesn't work that way. You have to be recreated. And this morning in the baptism class that we we talked about that, that idea that when we came out of the grave and became new again, when God birthed us, when, when we, the person that was, that failed God, the person that was offending God died when we became a new crea creation. And we died and we came out of that grave a new life. And we're to live the same way that we will always live acceptable towards God and that that is a new thing. And that Jesus is a, is a miracle worker over creation. And that he it allows us to be presented to God through his own blood. That was the picture of the wine, through his own blood. That's how he did it. We also saw this huge picture of a wedding. And we saw that Jesus was the groom. He was the one that had, was preparing a wedding for his bride. And the way he would do it would be to die for them. A tremendous. This is the second miracle. And we have in that same little town, we see that it happens. Now, the person who is encountering Jesus today is not from Cana. He is from Capernaum. And Capernaum is the big town, the, whole, the big town in that whole uh, place. So we're going to see that he is coming to Jesus. He, he realizes Jesus is back in town, and he travels to find Jesus because he is so desperate that he needs Jesus and Jesus only. Jesus only would do. And he goes and he finds him and he, he finds him in the, in the backwater, in the, in the backwoods of the place. So if you remember John's whole theme here, he is painting the picture that the world is darkness and death. That that's what the world is. That after the fall, all we have lived, we basically lived, just lived in the squalor. 
We live in darkness and we live in death. And for the years of our life, that that's basically all that we can do. We try to make mend, make do and mend, uh, basically have. But, the, but Jesus is from God. He's the one who came to us, that he came to us, that God might do something about where we are and what we're doing. And so we saw that in chapter 2, the old way of purification was not good. It was unsatisfactory. You can't approach God with water. So that, that had to be redone. We saw that in chapter 3, great religious learning wasn't satisfactory. Just because you had a Ph.D. in theology doesn't mean that you know straight up and that doesn't mean you're right with God. Just because you have learning doesn't mean anything. And in chapter 4 at the beginning, we saw that the secular life was unsatisfactory. Just doing your best and trying to make it, trying to get through the day, trying to keep your head down and survive, that that was unsatisfactory. It wasn't really life. So death and darkness, yes, that's where we live, but Jesus is coming as light and Jesus is coming as life. He's breaking into this world. He didn't just come to this world. He's breaking into this world, and he's breaking into this world the same way a resurrected man comes out of the tomb in chapter 11. The same way. That's how he's broken in. He's life, and people can't stay dead when he is around. And he's light. Even though it is dark all the way around, that light cannot be ignored. It's in your face. And this is, this is who Jesus is. So... We saw that Jesus is light and life, and he's doing this in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4 by giving new life. That's, that's how we've been seeing for the last three months. That's what we've seen. He gives new life. So in chapter 2, he gives new life by dying for his bride. That's how he gives it. He fills the jars with his blood, and that's how you can be acceptable before God. In chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again by the water and by the spirit. You have to be spirit has to, to come upon you and you have to be new, the same as if you were dead and now you're alive. And then in chapter 4, you take this purified soul now that's purified and enables them through the living water of the Holy Spirit upon them to actually please God, to be in God's presence. So this is what we're seeing, and it's in the same theme. Chapter, th these events, I don't know, happened first, second, third. I don't think this was the next thing that happened in Jesus' day. But John chooses this to put as this next thing because it's the same as what we've been hearing. He is giving new life, and we're going to see that he's going to give new life in a picture. He brings new life in the case of restoring the physical health of this boy, a boy that he won't even touch, that he won't even be in the same town with, that he's going to preach, he's going to heal at a distance. So again, if I were teaching the four-year-olds, that would be the lesson. Jesus is so powerful that he doesn't even need to be in the same place. He can just speak a word, and in that word, that person who he doesn't even see is healed at that same instant. But you're going to see that it's new life that he's bringing. He's bringing life, and he's not just bringing life to this boy. He's bringing new life to this entire family. We'll see that it's the entire household believes and is saved as a result. So it's really impossible to have real life without Jesus. That is what we've been looking at in the last three chapters. You can't have real life. You can't unless Jesus 
invade your life, unless he arrests you and your, and your life now truly begins for the first time. So I pulled Ecclesiastes 3.11, and I, I did it in the ESV because the translation of life in King James is, this is clear. I just wanted you to see this. This is uh, Ecclesiastes 3. Remember, Ecclesiastes 3 starts with there's a time for everything. A time to plant and a time to reap, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And then eventually it goes into, uh, into this. He has made everything beautiful in his time. That's the same theme that we see in, in Ecclesiastes 3, that there's a time for everything. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Now, the King James says puts life into a man's heart. But, the, but it's a bigger, it's a broader idea than just, than makes him alive. This is that there, that in a man there's something that can't be satisfied unless God himself does it. You can't be satisfied with your well water, even though you do it again and again and again. And it's, just, it's a never-ending occurrence. It's not enough. You're... It doesn't matter where you vacation. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter what you drive. There, that's not enough. There, it doesn't, it's not enough. It's not enough for someone who's poor, and it's not enough for someone who's rich. There's, there must be something else. It can't just be what your goals are. You have God printed on your heart, and you will pant and thirst until it's satisfied. You, you, you must have him. I, I remember reading um, Augustine's autobiography. He was, a, he was a pastor probably in the 300s, the 4th century, and he wrote a confessions. He was a foul, filthy boy, a teenager, a young man, and he, he was dramatically saved, and he wrote a book basically about his salvation account. And he wrote in the very first chapter something that's just quoted all over the world. He just said, he said, our hearts are restless. You have made us and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. you until we find our rest in you, we're always hungry. We're always, something has to go. And so what happens is the people start living fast. You start spinning it because it's like skipping a rock on the pond. You have to keep it really, really whirring so that it'll pop on the top of that water. And as soon as it slows down, it goes into the water. So we're always afraid that we're just going to sink like a rock. An airplane weighs tons and it only flies as long as the engine's running. Okay, you stop that engine and it plummets like a big heavy thing because that's what it is. So you want to keep your life just in a whirl, in a whirlwind, and people do that. No matter what you do, you have to have something, something. Something to keep you going. And it's gone. It, there isn't anything else that will satisfy you. The living water that comes out of you is God's spirit himself. It's the spirit of Jesus in you and it satisfies. You, if you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again. But if you drink the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. Because it's God that he gives you. We think that we're going to get some kind of a prize the good people get a prize. No, you get God. That's why you want, that's why God wants you to know, do you want him? 
That was another one of the, the questions for the baptism. Do you want him? Do you desire him? Do you want to go forward to him? Do you want to go to him? That is what he wants to know. Do you want me? Because if you want me, I'll give myself to you. But I will not give myself to you if you don't want me. It, that, that's where the, the sheep and the goats are different. Am I different from the ones bound for hell because of my behavior or my, or my mind or my habits or, or the things I do or leave undone? I'm sorry, no. There will be better people than me that will go to the flames. There will be better people. I will be saved only because of my faith in Christ because I desire Christ. And who gave me that desire? Because God said, I put eternity on your heart. That's just, the, that's just the idea that if it's not there, you'll know it. You know that it's not there. You know that you're not satisfied. But a person with Jesus now is satisfied. Rick said the other day, I'm the happiest man alive. I don't know how many problems you got. I couldn't count all your problems, Rick. Happiest man alive? Are you just being snarky? It was the idea that you're satisfied. There's a satisfaction. And, the, and then you get the rest. You, the eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and it's never entered into the heart of man what he has prepared for the ones who love him. That love him. Do you see it? And I don't love him because I loved him. I love him because he first loved me. He did something. He put eternity on my heart, and he made me pant after that. And I filled it with every imaginable vice, everything that I could think of, everything that I was able to grab. I tried it. And it's not satisfying. It's not satisfying. It doesn't do what you thought it would do. You were tricked. And because we don't have what we think we want, it takes a long time to get it. And then when we get it, we're like, okay, you think it should be so much better than it is. But to have God means that you have God to whatever you can understand God to be, and you will grow for the rest of eternity in your apprehension of who God is. Don't think that it's going to be static, that you're going to get bored in heaven. No, you're going to love it. And you're going to love it at 100%, but every day you're bigger, and your 100% gets bigger. Because God does that. He gives us himself. He provides for his bride, and we get him. That's, that's what he's saying here. So when you look at these word pictures, all of these pictures that we've seen, it's one picture after another. It's a picture of the wedding day. It's the picture of cleaning yourself. It's the picture of a baby being born. It's the picture of a well with water. And John is telling you one story, and that is you are unsatisfied until Jesus is yours. And now we have something just kind of completely different. We have a man that comes looking for him. Now, this man is a nobleman. <clears throat> uh, some, I think NIV calls him a royal official. So he's high status. This is a person that's connected somehow to the royal family. He's either been assigned to a task, a, a government job, or something very high. So we're talking about a wealthy man, an influential man, a man who's used to sending out servants and sending out slaves to do anything he wants done. And instead, he walks eight miles to come to nowhere land. And he does it himself. Now, eight miles on a, on a backwoods road, three hours? 
Three hours? Would that take you three hours to walk cross country or on a back road, a back, a back? I'd say an all day thing. To walk across country to go to nowhere, it's not even like that he can go shopping when he's there. He didn't go to Beckley. He didn't go somewhere where there's anything. He couldn't even eat anywhere. He went to Cana of Galilee, which is as backwater as you can get. And he went because he heard that Jesus had returned from Jerusalem to come back to Galilee. And what happened is he was desperate. So let's look at this passage. This is verse 43. Now, after two days, he departed thence and went to Galilee. Do you remember the two days was the revival he did a two-day revival, and an entire town came to him. They asked him to stay. Now we know for ourselves that you, what you said was true. We see for yourselves, and we believe not because of your word, but because of what we've seen. Okay, That's what every evangelist does, is simply just loan Jesus to someone long enough to where they know him, and then it's, then it's their relationship with, with God, not through someone else. You don't go through a priest. It's that person's relationship with Christ. And this whole town came to him. So after two days, he departed from Samaria, where he was, and he went up into Galilee. So he went north up to the lake. Okay? And then, this is 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Have you ever heard that? That's a very popular Bible quote. I think my grandma used to say that. Basically, I think she meant... You don't respect me the way you need to. I think that's what she meant. You need to respect me more and you need to treat me better, but I always get to, I'm the doormat around here. That's, I think, what she meant. Because a prophet has no honor in his own country. You, you, you will say something and somebody who doesn't even know you will think that, wow, that was good or that was smart or you said something, you blessed my heart. And the people that you're around all the time don't even think twice about it. That's the idea. A prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus, we're going to see through his entire life, is just, one, is just lack of recognition. This is God. This is the maker. This is the maker of heaven and earth who said, let there be light, and there was light. And he is in town, and people are always just like, whatever. And they love the, 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 the show quality. They love the, the spectator quality. They want to see something. They want to see an event. And in fact, Jesus even says today, unless you see a sign and a wonder, you won't believe anything. You just want to see a show. I'm not about a show. I'm not here to, be, to put on a show for you. If God could put on a show, can you imagine what kind of a show he could put on? But Jesus came as Savior, and he was talking in deeper, more important things. And he is coming back home. And you, an entire town came to him that wasn't even prepared. Their religion did, wasn't even right for them to know what salvation should be. And the whole town was saved. And now he's coming back to his hometown, and he doesn't expect much. He doesn't expect much, and he doesn't get much. Okay? Now, if you remember from John, this is John knows how to write a book. He really does. He presented all of these themes in chapter 1, and now he unpacks them as we go through the book. And one of his themes, this is from uh, chapter 1, verse 11, is he came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So we're going to see that he's coming to his town and he's, he doesn't even have the honor of a prophet in his own town because they don't think anything of him. 
but to those who receive him, that those who believe on his name, those will be the children of God. So it's the same as what we're talking to Nicodemus. When this boy is healed and the whole family comes to the Lord, the whole family will be reborn, will be new. The, the healing is what they prayed for because of their desperation. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus wants more for you than you want for yourself. So this is verse 45. When, they, uh, when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went to the feast. Now you have to see. That's the next verse. We just saw that Jesus said himself, I'm going back home and there's no honor to a prophet back home. When I go back to my own people, they're not going to receive me. They're not going to accept me. But it just says in this verse, they all received him. Well, obviously they received him in a different way than he just said. Why did they receive him? Because they saw all the things he did at Jerusalem at the feast. He healed people. Everywhere he went, there were no sick people. Everywhere he went, he, for the three years he ministered, there was, no, there was no ill people in the country. He healed them all. He simply went like a lawnmower healing people. And, and his fame became so that people received him because they wanted to see something. But yet he just claimed that these people would not receive him because he would receive no honor in his own town because they don't really see what the others would see. They didn't see what the Samaritans saw. The Samaritans, who were the dogs, saw what these people didn't see. But yet they received him because they wanted to see a show. And that's his accusation, even to this, even to this nobleman. So look at 46. So Jesus came into, again to Cana of Galilee where he made water and wine. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Okay? So Capernaum is a big town. It's got a Roman garrison there. It's wealthy. It's hopping. It's, there's stuff happening. It's, 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 it's where the government is. It's like a regional place. And this man comes from there all the way out into Cana to find Jesus because he hears that Jesus is back. Now, what would force him to do that? Desperation. You don't come to Jesus unless you're desperate. Nobody comes to Jesus. Nobody wants him. You come to Jesus when you're desperate. And that's the only time you come to Jesus. And don't think that God is not working in your life to make you desperate. That's not cruelty. It's not. Though that you hate what you're enduring, you hate what you're going through, you don't like it. God is doing it that you might trust him. Because to trust Jesus is to get Jesus, to get Jesus to have it all. He wants you to have it all. And to have Jesus is it all. There is nothing, that, the whole, he's worth more than the whole world. You couldn't weigh the whole world in its, while it's worth. Jesus is, is better. And there's not, a, there's not a Christian soul who more as they live won't say, yeah, keep it all. Keep the world. Give me Jesus. You give me Jesus, you can keep it all. And there isn't anything in the all that I want. Don't let me go back for this. Lot's wife that wanted to turn back and look at Sodom. Oh, if, I, if only. No, you're like, no, just keep going and keep going. Once you set your, your heart towards God, you keep going closer to God. You walk to God. You're now on a journey. You're a pilgrim and you're heading to the celestial city. And he's calling you to you. And he's like a magnet pulling you and pulling you. The closer you get to him, the harder he's pulling. 
and you want him more and the desires more and you want your your taste is more and you want him more and you keep going towards him. So here is this rich man from Capernaum and he walks eight miles and he's desperate. He's so desperate that he does it. You see, circumstances need to change in order for you to change your priorities. Your priorities stay the same until your circumstances change. When you realize that what is what you've prepared is not uh, not the same, that's when you, you that's when you become desperate. Can you imagine what a rich person attached to the king would have given his son? Can you imagine birthdays? Can you imagine Christmas? This kid had it all. This kid had the thingy that everybody wanted, and he had it, and probably had a room full of stuff. He probably had a trust fund waiting for him to where he didn't have to worry about his education. He probably had everything he needed. It was ready. It was prepared. And he's dying right now. He's dying right now. And suddenly, like, the preparations aren't sufficient. It's not satisfying. Do you see why it's here? It's in chapter 4 because the preparations this man made for his son is not satisfactory. Everything that he had ready, everything that was there... He knew what college he was going to. He knew what job he was going to land. He knew where he was going, except that he was dying on his bed right now. And suddenly, you go to Jesus. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? You're going to say, well, I've got plenty of money. Or, well, I've got plenty of, we love him, or we've, everything is ready, or he's got it all, or he got the pony, everybody, nobody got a pony. He got a pony. So he's fine. No, you're like, forget it. When the Titanic is going down, it doesn't matter how pretty the boat is. It doesn't matter what the dining room looked like. You're wanting off that boat as fast as you can. And you leave it all. You leave your oil paintings in the safe and you leave your diamond necklace and you run as fast as you can to the boats because you want to stay above the water. When your circumstances change, your priorities change. When your priorities change, you go to Jesus. Now, he went to Jesus. Does that mean he had faith? He went to Jesus. Could he have gone to the doctor? Yeah. Could he have gone to the most expensive doctor? Yes. He didn't. His son was critically ill, dying on his pillow right now. And he left his dying son's bedside so that he could go to nowhere land on the thought that he could possibly talk to somebody that he's never met because he heard that he was back in town. And suddenly now, everything drops. All of his priorities change and he goes to Jesus. So yes, I would call that faith. But it's an uninformed faith that's not good enough. It's not good enough. And Jesus works in everyone's life. You come to Jesus, Jesus will work in your life. Don't come to Jesus if you don't want him to work in your life. You come to Jesus with a request, and it may be that Jesus doesn't answer your request. You come to Jesus with a request, and he might answer that request in a way that you never thought about, because he's not doing according to your will. He's God Almighty, and you're coming to him because you're desperate. There is no other reason you come to Christ. You come because something made you come. And there is no satisfaction in every one of your preparations. You come to him instead. And so just like the wedding guest, just like Nicodemus, just like the woman at the well, 
He was desperate. He comes to, to Jesus. This is verse four or for 48. Jesus then says to him, oh, I'm sorry, he has to, he has to ask first. I have to get him to ask. So he asks, when he came to, heard that Jesus was coming to Judea of Galilee, as 47, he went to him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So he makes a request. Please come with me. Accompany me to my house so that you can touch my son because I've heard that that's what you do. You put your hand on someone and he gets better. Well, I live in Capernaum. We have to run now because he's right now at the point of death. It's imminent. We must go. Please come with me. Please come with me. Please come with me. Now, I love Jesus. I want Jesus to say, okay, let's go. That's what I want Jesus to say. But Jesus is God and Jesus is not me. And Jesus instead would say, no, no, no. There's something more pressing, more, more imminently pressing than your son dying right now. And that is that you are mine and I want you. So he changes his heart into a magnet and that he starts pulling, he starts pulling, he starts pulling. And he is wanting the man who has no interest in himself. He didn't come asking for himself for anything. He said, please come down with me. My son is at the point of death. And Jesus instead strong arms him. You're like, oh, Jesus, please. I want to, I've told everybody how nice you are. But yet you are making him, you're basically putting him off. Because Jesus then says, this is verse 48. Except that you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. Now, what does that do to someone with this much faith? Two things, right? What could happen? No faith or more. Do you see what's going to happen? This man, his faith is being tested and changed by his maker. His maker is recreating in his heart something just like he did in the water jar. He's doing something. And he's doing it by seemingly putting him off. Except that you've seen signs and wonders, you'll not believe. He's so desperate that he doesn't leave. He doesn't even know this man. And he basically ignored him. He was rude to him. It seems like Jesus was rude. You would say, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I should never have. Except that I can't go back. My son is dying right now and you are the person to go. There is no one to go to but you. So when God puts you off, you keep going towards God. There is nothing else. And God is not mean to you. He's working in your life to answer the real need, not the thing you want, but the real need, because he has to change his request. I'm so sorry to tell you that. You have to change your request. Your request is what you want. It's what you want right now. It's what you want. God cares too much about you. He wants you to want what's real. He wants you to want what's lasting. He wants you to want what you really want, what God wants. And so he, he stops you. He doesn't run at your whim. He doesn't run even though we're going to see Lazarus was in the grave for four days when Jesus shows up and it's not too late. So at the point of death is not too late. 
He waits and he says, except that you see signs and wonders, you not believe. And that man, it was so desperate that he had to keep staying with him. He had to keep going with him. He was like, all my eggs are in your basket. There isn't anything for me except for what you have. If whatever you say, Job was to the point where he said, though he slay me, I will trust in him. He was to that point where there was nobody else. All left Jesus. And Jesus looks at the twelve and said, hmm, you leaving too? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? You are the only one that has the words of life. We have to stay with you. It doesn't matter that your teaching is hard. It doesn't matter that we don't understand. It doesn't matter. We can't leave you. Because that magnet was so strong by that time that he couldn't possibly get away. It's only going to go closer and closer and closer. As you go to eternity, you're going to be following the one that you love. Your, your, your lover is the lily of the valley. The bright and morning star, the fairest 10,000. And you'll go, and you'll go, and you'll keep going, and you'll follow him, and you'll follow him, and you'll follow him. So he changes his request. Look at 49. The nobleman said unto her, him, Sir, come down here ere my child die. There is no, there is no content of healing him anymore. He wants him to be with him. What do you want for your kids? What do you want? What do you pray for, for your children? Do you pray for Harvard University? Do you pray for the Ferrari? Do you pray for the football scholarship? Do you pray for the homecoming queen on his arm? Is that what you're praying for? Pray all you want. But if you come to Jesus, Jesus will change your prayers. Suddenly now, it doesn't matter I counted ten fingers and ten toes, I promise. The first time I saw it, laid eyes on my girls, I'm like, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And I head. That's all I want. Ten fingers and a head. That's what I wanted. Now, what happens as soon as you've got the ten fingers, ten toes, and a head, now you want more. Now you want them to be the honor roll. Now you want them to be the, the, the center of the basketball team. You want more. But what happens is that God might not give you what you want. So he makes your questions change. And suddenly you come and say, sir, come down ere my child die. That's what you pray for your children. Sir, come down ere my child die. I want him to have you. If he has you, that's what I want. And I promise if you pray that for your children, you pray it for yourself. Whatever you want for your kids, that's what you want for yourself. God be with me ere I die. Don't. I have no preconceptions. I have no preconditions. You give me cancer. If that's your will, I'll go through that hard road. I don't want what I want. I want you. Suddenly now you're closer and the pull gets harder. You're closer and the pull gets harder. I want my son to have you, Jesus. Please come. Please come be with him, that he might be with you. And even that, Jesus doesn't answer according to the same way that the man thought. What happens? I wrote down something very strange. This is a hard teaching, and I decided to put it in because it's exactly where it goes. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. You've read, and I know, 
and you've probably scratched your head at it because it's one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament. This says, Jesus is speaking, and he says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Do you ever remember reading this? What happens is that God gives you faith. It's real faith. And that faith can't be turned off by God not answering immediately. That faith can't be turned off by no. Suddenly now, no becomes pray again. Not yet becomes, right now I need it. God, please, please, please now, 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 now. And the wicked judge said, though I don't care a thing about man, because this woman is driving me crazy, I'm going to give her justice. You see it? And Jacob wrestles and wrestles and wrestles and wrestles. I will not let you go until you bless me. That is is the violent taking the kingdom by force. How do you take the kingdom? By the faith that God plants in you. He puts it in you because he says, come on, come on. And then you back up. That's what you do to a small child. You say, come on, come on. You're walking, you're walking, you're walking. And then you back up so that he takes more steps. You're fit tricking him. And that's exactly what God does. He gives you faith. And then he makes you want more. And then he pulls you harder. And then he backs up. And you're like, where are you? Where are you? Come down there, my child, die. Where are you? Why aren't you answering me? Where are you? Do you even exist? And you go through that dark time in your soul where you doubt it all. And God is doing it in your life because he wants you so bad. And he's pulling you and pulling you and pulling you. And at the end of the story, the whole household becomes Christians. The whole household. That there's a great effort that the violent want. He wants you to want it. That's why your question will be, do you want him? Do you want him? That's your question that you have to answer correctly. Do I want him? Then go to him. That's all faith is. Do you want him? Then go to him. So so it changes. Sir, come down with me ere my child die. Do you see? It's not good enough for you to say, oh, what a beautiful treasure in that field. No, you want to own the field. That's what he wants. That's what faith is. That faith is, I, you don't even want anything until you see a, a miracle. And the guy's like, uh, come, bef- let him be with you. I want him to be with you. And that's all it took. When his appeal changed, you saw faith that God put in his heart that bloomed into something bigger. Now look at it in, in flower, because Jesus then speaks to him. Jesus says, go thy way, thy son liveth. Now that's what Jesus said. This is verse 50. Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus has spoken unto him. The modern translation says, he took him at his word. Which, oh, to take him at his word. He took him at his word. In his heart, he was like, okay, good. It's done. It's done. He said, your son is alive. Your son is going to live. Your son is healthy again. And he was like, okay, thank you. 
It wasn't, oh, weren't you going down with me? Aren't you going to check? Aren't you going to double check? No, he simply walked away, taking a breath, and now I, got, I need to get home to see what's going on. Okay? His faith is Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's what, that's what it is. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And when Jesus said he lives, he took him at his word. You remember, that's what, that's what we saw. That's what we saw with Abraham. He believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's the same as being righteous, to trust what God said. And what Jesus is saying is, you trust me. And by trusting me, it's the same as being accepted by me. And what happens? This is verse 51. And he was going down, his servants met him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour which he began to amend, and they said to him, yesterday they had seven hours, the fever left him. Don't tell me you wouldn't come back. Of course you would. Of course you would do it. There's not one in this room that wouldn't say. And then he was just like, his smile was not that his son was alive. What was his smile? His smile was that it was seven, the seventh hour yesterday when Jesus said, go, your son lives. And then it said, and he himself believed and his whole house. And then John adds, this was the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Let it be true of us. Oh, great God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask you to, to calm our spirits as we're troubled, as we're troubled for our children, as we're troubled for our souls, as we're troubled for ourselves, that you are our God. And you know what's best for us. And the faith you've put in our hearts have led us to know that you're trustworthy and true. And that we can put all of our anxiety on you because you care for us. I just ask that as we live our lives unable to do what we want in our frustration, that we would smile at our frustration and thank you for what you're doing in our lives. That we would trust you more and that we would truly have what you think of as the best, and that's yourself. May it be true of us, we pray. May we trust you, even for the first time today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.